Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Mobile Hunters, the king of comfort has arrived. Go to tetherednation.com and check out the new Lockdown Saddle. Over the past two years, Tethered has tested and refined a new approach to their saddle lineup. The Lockdown Saddle takes the best-in-class features from the Phantom, like the Utilibridge, Comfort Channels, and included an expandable saddle body with their Lockdown Link construction to take saddle hunting to the next level of comfort. As if this wasn't enough, they developed Lockdown Haulers, which has a slightly rigid internal frame structure, so you can easily unzip, zip, and access haulers with one hand. And if you're a guy like me with no junk in your trunk and have issues with your saddle staying put while you're walking in to hunt, the Lockdown Modular Yoke solves this problem. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old tree climbing veteran, go to tetherednation.com for all your saddle hunting gear. Welcome to the Truth of a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 356. Today, I'm joined by Jake Kremer to talk about chasing North Idaho mountain whitetails. So stay tuned. up everyone happy wednesday to you i hope you're doing well i hope you are feeling fine and now i think every state across the country is uh white tail season is open the pennsylvania statewide opener was this past weekend and uh i know i, I had two previous weeks i was able to get out but uh, had stuff going on uh during the course of the weekend first weekend i had some, some stuff going on the second weekend it was the whatever that hurricane tropical depression thing was it just kind of dumped rain and so that kind of was a wash so last weekend was the first weekend that I had a chance to get out. And uh, I kind of made a promise to myself in the off season that uh, I was going to uh, go to the North Peace as often as I possibly could this um, this fall just to try to get, you know, I don't know that I'll actually fill a tag up there because I'm still kind of learning and pieces of it and, and I've kind of started hunting a, a piece that I haven't hunted yet that I've hung cameras on historically, scouted some, but haven't hunted at all. Um, and so I kind of told myself every weekend in October or until I leave, 
for Kansas, I was going to make my way up there and put on some hunts and scout and check cameras and try to start figuring some stuff out. So I did that this past weekend. I did a little truck camping. Um, you know, I put a top of my truck last year so I could actually camp in the back of that for these short trips because the trailer is great if I'm going to be gone three, four days, something like that, where I need, um, you know, a few more amenities, if you will, a little bit more space. Um, but the back of the truck works great if I'm just going up for like one, maybe two nights. Um, I can just buzz, buzz out, you know, after work on Friday at some point, go up, you know, sleep in the back of the truck and be, you know, be there and ready to roll. And so that's what I did this past weekend. Um, got some good intel, pulled a few cameras uh, in this newer in this newer area. Um, I didn't make it to the old stomping grounds. And I say old stomping grounds only because I've, I've, I've actually hunted that piece on, on the opposite side. Um, I didn't make my way over there. I know there's a couple good deer over there and um, probably not, timing's probably not quite right uh, to hunt that, uh, those areas at the moment. So I really kind of focused my attention on this, this newer area that I've hung cameras historically, but just have never hunted and did some scouting, found some sign, um, pulled some cameras, a couple really good deer and, uh, and then ended up setting up to, to hunt in a, in an area that I thought might be kind of interesting, just kind of a terrain feature that should funnel some deer in out of this, um, out of this one, you know, I guess there's a, there's a newer cut i guess in this particular area um that that kind of funnels would would funnel deer into this this spot there's kind of a terrain feature kind of like a, a rim that kind of wraps around almost kind of creates this bowl and when i say a rim like it's not a, a ton of elevation i mean the elevation change might only be goodness i don't know probably maybe 20 30 feet you know on one in one area maybe 50 feet and then on the other side maybe 100 maybe um, and so it's not a ton, it's just enough to kind of push the deer into a particular spot. Um, so that's where I set up last night and, uh, didn't see a damn thing. Uh, did, did get eaten alive by mosquitoes though. Uh, but that was kind of to be, uh, to be expected, I guess, you know, in, in hindsight, I probably should have set up where I had found the sign while I was scouting earlier in the day. Um, I found a relatively fresh rub line, also had some pictures of a deer, um, uh, who I got him right after he peeled velvet, you know? And, and so I knew he was in the area, two different areas, actually where I pulled cameras and I had a hunch that he might be living in and around that spot. There were two kind of setups I had thought of. Well, three, actually one where I actually set up, like that was kind of like the spot that I kind of looked at prior to even going up that I wanted to set up because the wind was going to be right for access. There's two kind of access routes. One's kind of really long and you actually have to kind of walk through some decent stuff, um, to get into it. Which wasn't, which isn't ideal. Um, you can, it's still a good hunt. Like if you have to use that access, it's just not ideal. And then the wind that I had yesterday allows me to kind of come in, um, basically rip right up over this little um, ridge, I guess, if you will, and you know down into a bottom and then into this into this bowl. And it's it's a little shorter access. I want to say it's maybe like four hundred yards or something like that from from where I can kind of hop out of the truck. Um, but the more important part was, was like, I was walking in with, you know, basically a crosswind. So most of the wind was in my face, which was perfect. Um, but once I got to the tree to set up, like the crosswind was actually the exact wind you would want for those deer that might be coming out of that, that little cut area into this kind of like little, little funnel. And so based on the wind, it was the right, the right place to set up. And however, in hindsight, you know, maybe I should have thought about the, uh, the area where I found that, uh, fresh rub line a little bit, um, a little bit harder. The other spot I'd thought of is there's like a swampy area that's not too far from there. And in years past, it's not been super grown up. Um, 
I don't know if it's because it's just the growth is, is, you know, it's growing up just over age or if it's, um, you know, or if it's just, you know, I'm, I'm there earlier in the year than I've been in the, in the, in the past to kind of check it out. So the other thought was, was just to kind of actually set up and do an observation sit because there's so much area, this kind of swampy area kind of covers that I have a hard time believing that there's not a good buck or two just laying, laying in that. And actually a good buddy of mine in the past is actually in walking in a certain way has actually bumped, you know, decent bucks up out of that spot. So those were the three kind of areas I was playing with, but I ended up opting for the one where I had just had the better wind access um, early in the season. So don't want to go booger and stuff up. And so that was kind of the plan. I was like, maybe I, you know, um, catch lightning in a bottle here, but I know my, my access is good. My wind is good. And so everything should remain clean, um, you know, for me to come back, you know, the following weekend and, and hunt it and nothing be, you know, none the wiser that I have, uh, that I've been there. But, uh, beyond that, man, the other parts I was stoked about this past weekend is I was actually, now I hunted with my low poundage bow since I busted up my shoulder. It's still healing. It's getting better, but we'll see. Uh, but I was actually able to shoot my Hoyt. So my regular bow with like the normal, you know, with my normal draw weight. So I fired a couple arrows late last week with that. Um, so I'm optimistic that maybe by this weekend I might be able to shoot that consistently. I don't know. I think after I get done recording this, I'm going to go out and give it a couple rips and see how it feels. Um, and I'll be super stoked if I can actually get that thing back in my arsenal. Because the truth be told, where I was set up last night, you know, it was um, I was probably not set up in the exact right spot, um, especially with you know shooting a lower poundage bow at the moment. I was gonna it was gonna be a challenge to get a. Um, I shot to where I think in hindsight, where I thought that once I got into the tree and I could kind of see everything where I thought the deer might come out. Um, fortunately nothing did. So, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't like I botched that, but you know, um, shooting a lower poundage bow just really kind of shrinks in my, my killable area, mainly, you know, hand to hand combat with a, uh, with a prison shiv is basically what I got going on versus my normal bow, which I don't take long shots in general, but some of this area where I hunt in this North piece, it's, it's, it does get a little bit open. Um, and I know that we are always kind of looking for the thick, nasty stuff to hunt in. But um, some of these places where that's just kind of how the terrain, you know, lays out and the foliage lays out and how like the the connection pieces between one piece of habitat to the next, sometimes there are these areas that are a little bit more open where you do have, um, you know, more shot opportunities and so forth. Um, and then this was certainly one of those places where maybe, you know, I might have to take a little longer range. When I say a longer range shot, it's like, you know, I could shoot, I could get out to 40 yards or something like that. Um, you know, where with my current setup in a busted up shoulder, you know, I'm really kind of looking at to stay within that 25 yard kind of range, which is usually, you know, 90% of the time that's plenty for me, uh, in my setups, but it just so happened this one was just a little bit different. But with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. I have a cool show for you guys today. I got my buddy Jake Kramer on. Jake is a uh, a new friend of mine who was I was introduced to by an old friend, uh, my buddy Wilson McSwain. You guys know him, love him. He's been on the show a bunch. So Wilson moved to Idaho, you know, some time ago. I hunted with him last year in Idaho for uh, uh, for the opening of elk season, and uh, he's made friends with 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 Jake. And uh, Jake has opened an archery shop in Idaho. So if you're out west looking for an archery shop, North Idaho Archery is what he opened up in the Coeur d'Alene. Um, and Wilson texted me, he's like, Hey, you got to have this guy on. He's, um, uh, he's a killer kills, you know, giant whitetails in the mountains. And I'm always intrigued, especially after being out there, seeing that terrain and trying to figure out like how the hell would somebody actually hunt whitetails in this terrain and ever kill one. Um, access is tough. The terrain is tough and they just seem to have every advantage, 
Um, aside from being, you know, also they're, you know, skittish because they've got mountain lions and grizzlies and other things that are trying to kill them more consistently than humans. So humans are usually, you know, the least of their worries. And then the other connection point was that he's actually friends with Troy Pottinger and he kind of falls under that category of a very similar kind of hunting style. And so, and Jake kills hammers out there. Um, and so I'm always intrigued by people who kill big deer, mature deer more specifically in really, really hard places to hunt. And so Jake fit that bill. And I wanted to have him on just to kind of talk. It's also interesting too, because it's rare that I actually have a guest on where we both ha- where we both have knowledge of a specific area. So there were some spots last year that I, in, in elk hunting, Wilson and I found some really, really good whitetail sign. Hammers, huge, like the biggest scrape I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, probably the biggest scrape I've ever seen. And just giant rubs, like mammoth rubs. And... Um, and Jake knows exactly where those are at. And so we were actually able to talk about the those specific areas in the access and setups for those spots. So that was kind of cool because I've not often talked to someone on the show where we actually have both have knowledge of the same exact sign, same exact spots. So that was kind of cool. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump into today's show. As always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I've gone out west. I actually use my buddy, my secret weapon, my my secret weapon is uh, Wilson McSwain. Uh, he uh, he turned me on to this fella. He became good friends with the with the with the guy you're seeing on the other side of the screen here from me. But it's uh, none other than Mister Jake Kremer from Idaho. What's going on, man? Not a lot, man. Uh, busy day of processing uh, elk that I harvested this week. So it's been it's been a busy week. Nice, man. That's a, that's a good kind of busy to have, man. That's the yeah. the I'll take I'll take that. You know. I always enjoy, of course, I think we all do as hunters, we enjoy being out in the mountains, doing what we love to do, right? Um, but there comes a point in time, especially elk hunting, where it's like you get some days in, you're like, good Lord, man, I just want to fill a tag because I want to be done, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, I'm like that every year with elk. You know, obviously, uh, white cells kind of have my heart. And so, you know, I this year, I really kind of put a lot more effort into elk than I have previously, and mm-hmm. that paid off obviously um but i had 100 miles on my on my boots before i uh even laid eyes on them out you know all the all the scouting i had done all summer was was for not but it's, it was good to finally get into them yeah you guys had a bunch of i know i was talking to wilson because i know the place that he and i hunted together out there last year was basically all covered up in fire this year and so i know he was hunting in a completely different area from where he was at last year and it was all kind of brand new territory did you have a similar thing or were you at least lucky enough to where areas that maybe you knew or were aware of you know weren't on fire <laughs> uh well actually i had a similar thing last year uh one of the uh, two of my white tail spots last year uh you know i had obviously did there and there and uh pretty much got pushed out because of the fires this year uh i was lucky enough i mean i have i have had a terrible year finding white tails but as far as i'll go um yeah, I didn't get pushed out of any of my areas. It's uh, just one of those things that, you know, whether the wolves moved in or, or whatever it is. Um, and I think part of it being I'm so far away from, from people, trying to get away from people that I'm in pretty low elk density. So when that goes on to a couple of new drainages, they're just gone. Right, right. Man, I'm curious, man, because, you know, as, being a Westerner, you know, most guys I know are buddies that I have that are, from the west like they're usually like 
elk guys first and foremost and they might dabble in whitetail hunting once in a while like just for you know shits and giggles maybe right <laughs> like you know maybe they filled their elk tag and maybe they, they killed a muley too and it's like yeah we'll go whitetail hunt because i don't have anything better to do um and and wilson's kind of actually turned that way like he's more interested in and i think for him you know obviously being newer out there it's like he's just stoked the fact that he lives in a place that he can actually hunt these things that you don't have access to you know living in a place like pennsylvania but I'm curious, how did a guy, a Westerner, how is it that you are more ate up with whitetails than you are necessarily elk? How that, how did that happen? It's, it's, uh, it's interesting you ask that because I'm, I'm definitely in a low percentage. Yeah. Um, honestly, it's probably the household that I grew up in. Um, stepmom wasn't really a huge fan of hunting. Uh, dad wasn't a big outdoors and then you know uh, we'd go fishing every once in a while he didn't grow up on big game and so it was he took me out the first couple of times until i got my hunting license and my driver's license and kind of like hey go figure it out yourself you know and so it was one of those things that was by necessity i could only hunt whitetails uh, because there was never enough freezer room uh, my stepmom made sure of that <laughs> but and, uh, you know, I just, I didn't have a lot of buddies who did elk hunt. Um, I didn't have a lot of buddies who white elk hunted either. You know, it was, it was, it was one of those things that went out there and to figure it out. And frankly, I, I sucked for a few years. Um, but yeah, it was, I think it just became out of necessity. And then I became fairly good at hunting whitetails. You know, I kind of became the guy, I let guys that called and said, Hey, you know, I need to get my buck. Can you come help me? And, uh, from there, it's kind of, it became the drive that heavily gone away. And, you know, I, I think, uh, elk are one of those things that you, you really, really have to love to proceed. It's, uh, yeah, you, yeah. you got to be okay with running into people in the woods. You have to be okay with public pressure because, you know, unlike whitetails where you go into the whitetail country, Generally, there's white tail there. You know, you go into elk woods, that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be elk. You know, you can find all sorts of elk sides. They're 15 miles away. You know, so so when you find the elk, usually two or three other guys have also found the elk. Unless you just really push yourself into some spots that guys don't want to go into, which is kind of what Wilson's doing, which is what I I did this year. You know, I really put myself into getting into some of that stuff that, you know, isn't necessarily the back country, but it is definitely country that uh, most guys on foot don't want to walk into. Right. Yeah, and it makes sense too that, you know, when you just kind of mentioned, like, you, you know, it, when people say from around PA, you know, or just East Coast or you know Midwest, they don't grow up in hunting families, you know, and they and they are hardcore hunting families, you know they still usually end up finding their way into deer hunting one way or another, but just because that's kind of like the, the big game of the area. And, and it's not, um, it's not super, uh, uh, limited or limiting in terms of like your access to it. Right. Especially even if you're like a young kid, if you got like a back 40 or something like that, that you grew up on a PA, you know, you can at least hunt that back 40 and you really don't need much handholding. You can go out and figure it out and have some fun and make a bunch of mistakes. And even if you don't, you know, there's plenty of public ground around. You can go trapeze around the public ground until you mess up a bunch of hunts and kind of figure it out, right? But when you're talking about Western hunting, like, there's not a whole lot of, like, even as a grown adult, like, because I didn't start elk hunting until I was, 
you know, a, a grown man, like, so I was in my thirties. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would have went out and done an elk hunt on my own, you know, but man, it was a lot nicer having a buddy who lived in Montana that I could go with for the first time to kind of see and like, understand like, all right, how do you play the the wind and the thermals a little bit differently in, in the mountains? Like, how do you go about glassing? How do you go about finding the right habitat to find them in? Like just all the stuff like that, because it's just so much more area and just harder, right? Like you're talking about elevation gain. You're talking about, especially like some areas, like if you're in Colorado and some areas and some of the areas actually I was in in Montana, just like, um, the altitude, you know what I mean? Just, you know, especially if you're doing like any type of high country hunt or something like that in those, those types of places, it's like, it's not just challenging. Like it can be borderline dangerous and kind of stupid. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and you get yourself in a jackpot in a hurry, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, and again, just, it's, it's one of those things that, Hey, you're going into nasty country, you're going into high country and you're not necessarily finding out, right? Like mm-hmm. this, there's a, I talked to a biologist and there's a, a local herd around here near where I live. And the herd does, uh, I think it's 42 mile loop, you know? And so if you're not on them in that 42 mile loop, you're not on them, right? Like you're, you're a truck right away from, from wherever this, these, these elk go. And so, yeah, it's, it's just different. You know, it's, it's a tough hunt. Um, it's, it's not, yeah. Especially where you're at too, man. Like, especially where you're at in Idaho. Like, cause that was the biggest eye-opening thing for me. Hunting out there with Wilson last year was, you know, um, just him telling me like how the terrain's different how kind of rugged it is, thick it is, steep it is, right? Stuff like that. And that there's not a lot of glassing opportunities and stuff like that. Cause my previous elk hunt was in South, uh, Western Mo- Montana. So it was, I was close to the border of Idaho, but it was in kind of like, you know, I guess what you might refer to as like the high desert or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Where a lot of glassing opportunities where, you know, there were definitely days where you might do 10 miles. I think the longest day we did was like 15, but most days were probably like closer to that, like six to eight, you know what I mean? Like, you know, because we could spend a lot of time glassing and just watching a big area, you know, and it's like, and we weren't really going to move. Like we knew there were elk in the general area and we were going to find them first before we were going to make any type of, um, make any type of move. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But where you're at, that's not necessarily the uh, (laughs) situation. There's very limited glassing opportunities. (laughs) Yeah. I I talked to some guys who, you know, want to come out here in Elkhart and, you know, tell us some stories about some elk on the, you know, last year I called in five bulls and I had five bulls at less than 20 yards and uh, I couldn't see them. And he was that thick. I, I mean, I could see the tops of their antlers raking trees, like hear them bugling, screaming in my face. But there wasn't a snowball's chance in hell I was getting an arrow in them. Right. Uh, and so it's just calling in elk is, is one thing. Uh, getting in their wheelhouse to, with a shooting lane is a whole other. And it, it sounded like your hunt with Wilson was, was kind of that way with you guys. You sound The way you made it sound, you guys were an elk a lot. You guys didn't have a lot of shooting opportunities. Yeah, I mean that's everyone asked me how the trip was because they think you know you know bummer you go out and you just you know, spend the time and stuff like that you you come home empty-handed. But I was like, I was like, I was like, I think we were in elk every single day. I was like that I could I was literally close enough to hear them. You know, I was like where they might have only been fifty yards away, forty yards away. You know, like 
And, but I just couldn't see him. You know what I mean? Like it just, you could hear him. You would hear some cow calling. Like they weren't ripping bugles yet. Like I was there the first week of the season, like the opening week. And uh, so they weren't quite fired up yet. I was like, but like I was in and around them every day. You know, I was like, yeah, it's just, you know, there was one time we saw them, you know, and at that point they were, I mean, it was like three yards away from me, you know, it was like so close. It was like a little unnerving. Like, and then there was like a herd of 20 that come like running by us because we spooked them, you know, but, but yeah, it's just a whole different world, that area, um, hunting elk in that type of, that type of country. It's just, I mean, they're hard enough to kill and hunting them in that type of country is just a, uh, an added difficulty that a person like me doesn't need. (laughs) Well, and and to kind of get into, I guess what we're getting into here is is now you try to hop a mature white coat on that stuff. Yeah, man. Like, because it um. So first, before before we jump into that, I want to get into that in a second. But how did you? So you didn't come from a hunting family. You started deer hunting because it sounds like it was really kind of the the path of least resistance for you, right? Like it was probably the thing that was most accessible. Elk was probably a little less accessible and stuff like that. But how did you get into like hunting, like focusing on mature whitetails? Like when did that kind of start happening? Um, so I kind of got to give credit to, uh, Troy. I think you've had him on your podcast before. <laughs> um, Troy Cottinger for, for all the rest of your listeners. Um, you know, I, I hunted whitetails for a long time. I killed a lot of big bucks and big bucks to me at that time, you know, a four and a half level with a giant. I would, you know, one thirties. I think the biggest one I had before I met Troy was like the one forty two. And, you know, I was consistently killing deer every year. But I, I really didn't put the dots together. I wasn't really looking at it analytically until I had met Troy. And um I had kind of started archery hunting um two or three years prior to that, you know, because I grew up a rifle hunter. I I didn't know a single archery kind of drill out. Uh, people just didn't own both. Uh, it just wasn't the culture. And, uh, so I was kind of the outside guy in, in the archery world in general. And then, you know, I, well, I really wanted to pick up whitetail unwitting. And so got to talk with Troy and he really kind of helped me connect some missing dots. I was missing. And from there, I really kind of put a lot of my own effort and, and time and thought into, into how to um, yeah, it was really kind of my connection with Troy that really snowballed into the mature whitetails in the mountains. And, um, you know, even where I grew up, so I grew up down in Lewiston, uh, Lewiston, Idaho, and the country down there is different than the country up here. And, you know, guys, I don't know, guys in Lewiston really think they live in North Idaho, but until you get into North Idaho country, it ain't North Idaho. You know, right. I had damn near relearned everything I knew about whitetails coming up because it, it's just a completely different game and um they, they're surviving in some extreme areas that I, you just couldn't imagine finding a white show right well how did you how did you meet troy uh so i was uh working as a deputy um for the county that troy is in and uh i had kind of followed troy on social media uh, several years prior to that and yeah, I was watching him kill these big deer and initially I was like, I really don't like this guy. You know, like, how's this guy doing this? Like I live in Idaho. I'm not fighting deer. Like he's doing something, right? He's something nefarious. And 
I, you know, after two or three years, I kind of maturing and, and kind of watching what he was doing. Um, not that Bastique's kind of the real deal. And, right. Um, so I reached out to, to Troy, um, it just as a stranger out of the internet and the, Hey, you know, this is who I am. This is, you know, what I do for a living. Um, would love to, you know, buy some of the buck beetle product from you and, and kind of talk white sales with you and, and really just kind of get a better understanding of what I'm missing. I'm missing stuff component here. And so, yeah, so I, I connected with Troy, um, through social media and I drove out to his house in my patrol car, you know, being a county deputy, I'd be able to just kind of go wherever I was. I showed up in uniform and, uh, we, you know, not a deputy anymore. My supervisor that back then probably would have been tickled, but we probably talked white cells for three and a half hours <laughs> before we kind of parted ways there. And, uh, from there, we just kind of, you know, blossomed a friendship and, you know, I, I think he realized I was very like-minded, very similar mindset with the what I wanted to do in the white cell world. And um, he really, uh, that first year helped me out a lot on um, understanding, you know, what elevations I'm looking for, what, what vegetation I'm looking for, what, what I was doing wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's how we met. Um, I, I guess the long answer is short there. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, this through social media and, and yeah, I mean, just kind of being a stranger on the internet and, um, yeah. nice. Yeah. Troy's good people, man. I always like talking to him. Um, you know, I, I, I met him the same way. Uh, it was just, you know, through social media, um, similar type of thing. We had a couple mutual friends and I was just kind of following along and he was just killing deer in, in just in, in a place that I was like, man, it just seems again, the idea that someone is, um, lives in the West and is that in the white tails? And I know he hunts elk as well and stuff like that, but it was just like, that was the thing that kind of intrigued me. You know, I was like, man, I was like, that seems like a hard place to hunt. Like I would never, you know, and I would think of like, I get it. Like if you're in Montana, some like the, the low country in Montana, like white tail hunting can be decent. You know what I mean? Uh, or, um, where you have a, um, a, a target rich environment, if you will. Right. Like there's plenty of deer. Right. And, and when I start and like, I've, I hunt mountains around PA and, you know, nothing compared to what Idaho is. Right. But I also just know like hunting the mountains that I do hunt. It's like, man, it's not target rich, you know, even like, you know, in a, in a state like PA where you do have a lot of deer, but you get into some of those really kind of rough areas. It's like the, the deer numbers either, either aren't the same, or at least in my case in PA, it's like, I think they're probably the same where I'm at. It's just, they're very, it's very specific, like where they're at and you're either in them or you're not even close, you know, and that's kind of how those, the mountains hunting. And so I was really intrigued to talk to him at first, just because of that. And that's also why, like in talking to Wilson, you know, he's like, Hey, I got a buddy that I've met out here. He's like, you should totally talk to him. You know, he's like killing deer in the mountains, you know, and he'd mentioned to you, you know, you and Troy were friends and stuff. And, uh, I was like, well, shit. Yeah. I was like, I got to talk to this guy then. I was like, cause I'm always intrigued. But for, for people that are listening, you know, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, that you almost had to kind of relearn things moving from where you had lived in Idaho, like whenever you kind of went to the north or whatever. It's like, it was just, you know, a different ball game. So making that move, what was, what was unique and challenging for that particular location in chasing mature whitetails versus where you had come from? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, down there by Lewiston, the breaks of the Clearwater and the Snake River and, and around there, um, target rich environment, like we're talking about. The the deer densities are fairly high. There's a lot of ag Most of them are in the canyons, you know, so you're not trying to get above these deer. You're not trying to figure out what elevation and then you know where they're at. They're in these canyons. Uh, they're better than these canyons. They're moving up into the ag fields to feed. Honestly, if you spend any amount of time trying to figure out why tails, you'd figure them out pretty damn easy in these canyons. They're there. Coming up to North Idaho, no glassing opportunities, right? You're you're talking thick, thick, thick brush, high high elevations, steep faces, terrible thermals, whirly winds, and deer that just don't daylight. Right? We're talking predators that I've never had to deal with before. You know, those canyons they have some deer, they have some bears, not very high density. One spot I hunted last year. I had 15 different bears on camera in my scrape in the chewy period, you know, and identifiably different based on color size. Black bear or brown bear? Uh, a lot of black bear. Um, one particular area I was hunting, um, grizzly dense area. Uh, I have one bear that was large enough and brown enough that was like, nah, that, that could be a grizzly, but it wasn't good enough picture to, to say one, one way or another. But, uh, so yeah, really just kind of trying to figure out where are these deer with, you know, because uh, you're not going into that similar to the elk we we're talking about. You're not going into deer country and necessarily finding deer. Um, that's I think that's one thing that, that maybe your your listeners should should understand is that two out of three spots that I that I put in or I scout or I throw a scrape up for canvas might not produce a deer. You yeah. know I. Um, and that's what's happened to me this year. Honestly, I, I had three or four dynamite spots and I'm like, there is gonna be a giant here. And it just had everything I was looking for, had the elevation, had the terrain, had the vegetation. And, um, I think in three and a half months, I got a doe on camera. Wow. And so we're, you're talking one to three deer per square mile. Uh, you you're you got to be okay with sitting in the stand for 10 to 12 hours and seeing a deer <laughs> it's it's very 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 low opportunity but there's a reason why big mature buck are there right right most shows i well to do it right so from where you moved from to here so less target rich right now was the quality or age structure better in Northern Idaho than versus where you came from? Yes and no. Um, depending on the particular area you were in, um, you know, if there's a, there's, there's one area I hunted down by Lewiston that there's huge swaths of, of private land. So some of the deer were able to get a lot of age structure. Um, up here in Northern Idaho, where there are a lot of deer, you know, where the opportunities are there, there's also a ton of on this. So the age structure is fair. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the other part of it is that our winners are dreamly hearts where a lot of these big bucks are at. And so if I can get a buck to five and a half years old, six and a half years old, I'm pretty stuck. Yeah. You know, because by the time I hit four and a half, they're running so damn hard that I'm, 
it's a rough winter. You got to lose another one. Get out. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so oftentimes, you know, we're, we're trying not to kill them until they're five and a half years old. Um, one of my biggest bucks I've ever killed him out of was four and a half years old. And it was a deer he wouldn't pass up anywhere in the country. Hunter rights that any change. Um, right. So you still hear me? Yep. I still got you. Okay. My computer just, uh, oh, there, okay. I got you back. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of age structure up here. A little bit better age structure, I guess, to answer the question. Um, the genetics aren't necessarily the best in the age structure, right? They, we have some bucks that at uh, two and a half and three and a half years old, you can tell they're just going to be absolute mega giants. And then um, this year, I've got two six and a half year olds on camera, but they can probably get them up shooting. And they let this happen. I mean, what will they have? Nothing else. Uh, right. Neither one of them are going to go over 130. Right. So I'm curious, you know, if, like, so what's the, I'm just curious for you, you know, what the, what the allure of hunting whitetails in, in rugged country like that is, right? Because it's kind of crazy. You know, it's like, I've been there, like I told Wilson, that, like when we were out there hunting elk together, I was like, man, I was like, I can't imagine hunting deer in this place. You know what I mean? I was like, I would do it. I was like, but I feel like I'd be asking a farmer around there somewhere for some <laughs> access to some private ground to get on, you know, to where the hunt's a little easier. But whenever you see some of the sign and things like that in certain areas, there was an area we were, we walked up over uh, looking for some elk. And I found, I mean, we found the biggest, the biggest scrape I've ever seen in my life. Like at first when I saw it, I was like, man, is that a bed? But it, I mean, it couldn't have been a bed, like just the shape of it just said it wasn't a bed. And like, and there was a looking branch that was there and stuff like that, you know? Because when I first saw it, I was like, oh man, there's a huge bed. At first I was thinking maybe an elk bed, right? But it was still too small to be an elk bed. And I was like, well, it's not a deer bed. And then I saw like the looking branches as we got closer. I was like, holy shit, man. I was like, this thing's a scrape. And it was just like the size of a freaking car hood, like just giant. And then not far from there, there was probably one of the biggest rubs I'd ever seen, you know? And I was like, man, I was like, that is... I was like, that's a hammer deer. Whatever's using that, I was like, is 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 not a small deer. So so there's the allure, right? It is ninety nine point nine percent of guys out here aren't doing it. Can't do it. Unwilling to do it. And yeah, I could go talk to a farmer. I could go on some ag land, but generally those are low lying, you know, populations. There's a lot of opportunities, but you don't have the big mature bucks because there are, you know, the frankly, the the farmers allow quite a few people to hunt, and so ninety nine point nine percent of everyone in Idaho is an opportunity hunt. So you're just not, you know, you you're not getting those opportunities at, at big mature whitetails, and so. The, the allure is a you're doing something no one else is doing. B you're you're have the opportunity to get in close on a giant specimen of a white felt that probably no one else has even laid eyes on. You know. Um I mean Wilson showed me the picture uh, of that script. Uh that's the giant and script. I mean that's a textbook giant mountain community scrape, and that's what you're looking for. You look around there and you think you sell out the hell of them hot deer. How do you do it? Right. Well, that's, that's honestly, it's, it's almost an advantage 
as an archery hunter because I get in the air and I figure out where the bedding areas are. Like, that's the particular scrape. I haven't been in there with Wilson. He me go and I help him on that particular one. But, um, just depending on what the winds and the thermals are doing, it may not be audible, you know, but if you can get off of it, get on that edge of that bedding area, you might have a better advantage than a rifle hunter ever are just going to go walking through the woods. He's, he's going to be 90% of the time on the ground, and he's not going to be able to use that a little bit of elevation in the tree to use those thermals to his advantage. And, uh, yeah, this, so it, <laughs> the allure to go out uh, to the east, I tell you, I'll tell you, is, uh, is high. I would, I would absolutely love to go and enjoy a deer hunt where I see 30 deer in an evening. You know, there's just stuff I have. Um, I'd love to go watch bucks being bucks chasing doves. It just doesn't happen here. You get, right. you get to see plenty of tuna at the old chasing gear, but um, yeah, would I would I enjoy a hunt that's maybe not so grinding and grueling? Absolutely, but this is what's in my backyard. Right. You know, and so you kind of got to figure it out, and you got to you just got to be willing to commit to killing big deer. And if you're, the only way to do that is by going into these nasty learning areas. Even then, you know, I, I had an area last year that I was, I mean, to kind of give myself away a little bit. Uh, I could see Canada from my tree stand. Oh, nice. You know, and um, I was hunting a deer that, frankly, I'll, I think would have been a new Idaho State record. I kind of killed a uh, giant, giant bit. But rifle season opened up, and all the scouting and everything I had done, all the scrapes I had built, everything, all the work just went straight out the window. Uh, you know, the rifle hunters in North Idaho have also kind of adapted to, to figuring out where these white are at, and so they're running down these steep ridges. They're running bedding areas, and often they jump the box and so I could have killed that deer, uh, opening evening of uh, hunting season, and I wasn't in the stand. I wasn't. I didn't even have a stand, honestly, where I had where I had him on camera. Yeah, I, I got him on a straight. That uh, frankly, I was like, there's no, there's no chance. You just never know. You know, I, I had to, it's a web of cameras, right? You got to figure out where those gears go. And opening day, if you standing there, broadside, daylight, sure as shit, he'd have been dead. But. As, as soon as the rifle hunter moved, then you've gone. Right. So, right. That's that's the other complexity to the to the issue out here is is finding deer, a that are getting to that giant mature status, and b having one not get just pushed into the next county. Because, I mean, you you saw they, there's so much ground out here; those deer can disappear. I mean, yeah. And I don't think what people realize out here, especially, is that our deer are super nomadic. I mean, like, I'll get a deer on camera seven miles apart in the sitting evening. And it's it's not uncommon. It's not unusual. They just trout. And, and I think it's it's to the effect, because we have such low deer densities, they'd have to, right? They have to go find those doe. They have to go see who's still alive, who's moving into the area, who's doing what. And so, yeah, anyway, yeah, I think it's long-winded. No, that's... It, I mean, I, I totally get it. After being there and seeing what I saw, that's cool that Wilson showed you that because that was just like 
when I saw that, I was like, man, yeah, I'd probably try to figure out how to hunt that. <laughs> you know, it's a, uh, but it, you're right. I mean, I was thinking about like, we sat there for a second. I mean, even though we were away, it was funny because, you know, we had a camera guy with us and Wilson and I stopped there. We saw that scrape. He didn't know what a scrape was, you know, because he's never really hunted deer like that before. And he's like, he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like this, it's a scrape. He's like, what do you mean? And so we kind of explained it to him. And then Wilson and I stood there for like a couple minutes, like thinking about it. And I was like, man, I wonder where that deer's bedded. And we were like looking at the map and like talking about it. He's like, I've never seen two people care so much about where a deer might live, <laughs> you know, which was kind of, which was kind of funny. Um, but as I was standing there, I was like saying to us, I was like, man, I don't even know how I would go about trying to get in here to hunt him. You know what I mean? I was like, because it was so hard to get into that spot to begin with. It's so steep. You know what I mean? And I was like, I feel like you would almost just like, unless you know for sure, like what area he's bedded in. Cause once you hit like a certain, it was all pretty clean walking until we hit like a certain elevation point, And then it just got super thick and just like nasty and shitty. And, and I was like, you, you have to know like where he wants to bed on like whatever wind is like, cause the chances of him hearing you come up through there, like you're never going to get there before he knows that you're there. You know what I mean? I was like, or you have to come in the complete opposite way, or you got to come in like way down the ridge, ridge line and try to walk the ridge. But it was so nasty and shitty on top to try to walk that whole ridge line out to where he was at or where he might have been was just, it was almost like crazy man talk. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, yeah. Uh, there's two scrapes that I've found in my life that are like that where, you know, there's a giant in there, but there's not a snowball's chance in hell. You could hunt it. Right. Then in every which direction you come from, you'd be sweating like hell before you got there. He would hear you coming a mile away. And and I mean there's a reason. There's I mean, there's a reason why these deer have these scrapes where they have it straight. Sometimes they're just in a spot that they know. And I, and you throw a camera on it, guaranteed out there is in their daylight. Yeah. He's batted up nearby. He's safe. He knows he's safe. The thermals are perfect for him. Any predator that comes into there, he knows it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, looking at it on the map with Wilson, um, it looked uh, it looked like one of those spots where I was like, ah, I don't, I don't think you can do it, <laughs> right? But you know what? He he will try it. I promise you. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to go in there with him. We're going to give her to give it a shot. See if we can we can figure out, you know. If I remember right, on which side of the mountain it's on, it's also just a pretty terrible spot for our prevailing winds in mm-hmm. Lambert. And so, yeah, it, we're going to go give it a shot. We'll see what we can do. But uh, yeah, there's, there's sometimes. So this is a this is a great because I don't usually have the opportunity like this with people that I have on the show that we have like knowledge about the same spot together, right? And so this is kind of cool because you know a lot of times I have guys on and I can ask them about like you know elevation lines and stuff like that but like i actually know where this spot is and so i'm curious to know from you like when you saw that was it at about the elevation you would think that that's at and like what elevation do you typically kind of like key in on yeah yeah if i if i remember right that was sitting at about 36 to 38 yeah 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 so that's honestly that's like textbook where i would like to be Um, yeah i'm i a lot of my spots, I can't get that elevation, but if, if I can, if, I, yeah, if I'm on a mountain that's 5,000, 6,000 foot high, I'm going to start at 3,300 and I'm going to go up to 48. I'm going to 
And that's where I'm going to be looking for my community scrapes. That's where I'm going to be putting in my scrapes. Anywhere below that, I've got to have something forcing my deer down. I got. I'm looking for something that's forcing them below that elevation line, whether that's a, a major road system, uh, whether that be a major forest service system or something to that effect, pushing them downhill. Those bucks want to be above those does, and it would it would blow a lot of people's minds how high those deer line. You know, I, for a lot of years, you know, I mean, until there's 18, 20 inches of snow on the ground, he'll just stay there. And that's why I allow them to get winter kill. You know, because they stay there, they 14, 15 inches on the ground, and then overnight we get 18 inches of snow. Right. They're stuck. Uh, so that was kind of textbook elevation for, like, where you... Yeah. yeah. Right. Look, elevation, because oftentimes you'll get those bucks bedded at that 36 to 38 on IP. You know, that's, a, that's not a bad spot for them to be bedded. That's big, big mature bucks. The real longer deer, you know, they're going to go higher than you know if you have forty five hundred five thousand. It's not you're not going to find a ton of deer up that high, but you'll find one and two, right? But if you a little bit higher density, a little bit more higher average, I guess you'd say thirty six hundred to forty four hundred feet is where them bucks are more than likely. And a lot of times it's because that's where where that woody browse that that brush is up where that bedding area. That's where it's going to be best on the mountain. That's that's the area, and so that yeah, it, I guess to your to your question, uh, where that scrape was that you guys stumbled upon, that's that's a textbook elevation where I'd want to be, and and it sound that him to be bad as out, right? Because it sounded also like just as you were describing that kind of setup, like a lot of what we were seeing as far as like the vegetation was what you were kind of describing, and it was like a, just a ton of like it just got like here I would almost refer to it as like mountain laurel. Or something like that, but it wasn't. It wasn't Mount Laurel. It was. It was a lot thicker than that, and just none of it was any higher than like, you know, maybe six foot tall. You know, and just like brushy, whatever, and just like super close together. You know, you would find like a little trail through it. There would be like a little break you can make your way through. Then it would just like close up. You know, and that was like basically from that point forward. That's all it was until you got to the top, and then it opened up on top just a little bit. But the trees weren't super big on the top; like they were actually lower canopy. You know, and that was the other place where we found some, I think there were some rubs and stuff that were in there and maybe a little bit of scat that was in there too. But so <clears throat> what type of vegetation, like, it, are you typically kind of looking for to find these setups? Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking for that hard browse, you know, and, just, and the problem is with a lot of times you're going in in the spring and summer trying to set up these spots. And so you got all this super nice lush green vegetation and that's not what I'm looking for. Right? That's that's great in the summertime, but oftentimes my bread and butter is late season. And so mm-hmm. what what kind of art browse are they going to have near a bedding area for late season? Like what is going to be here to sustain them as long as they don't get pushed out? Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, all that ocean spray. I'm looking for huffleberries. And mm-hmm. huffleberries is huge. Yeah. Um, uh, honestly, I, I, I'll have deer that'll follow my huckleberry patches up the mountain. You know, I, I, uh, they'll start at 2,600 feet when they start getting ripe in late June. And then by the end of August, that deer's up at 4,800, 5,000 feet because that's where the huckleberries are there, you know? And so, yeah, just really any of that hard browser, you know, deer eating. I'm, 
especially when I go into a new area, I'm looking for that hard browse that's been eaten off, that's been chewed down, that I know should be four or five feet tall, but the thing is only a foot and a half tall. It's because it's been chewed down every year for the last year. And it's right. Um, you know, if you could find trees that, you know, looks like the, the deer been eating that soft browse off of the bottom of it. Um, one of, uh, one of my slots in the mountains, um, next time you come out here, I'd love to take you to it, show you a little in the spot. It's, uh, it's stupid. It's, it looks like a city park. Um, unlike anything you'd ever found in the mountains, I'm 20 some odd miles from the nearest ag field. And it is as flat as you can imagine on the edge of this mountain. And the trees are eaten as high up as the deer can eat them. And you just see underneath everything. And you got huckleberry brush and hard brows that's been eaten down to about a foot tall everywhere you look. And last year, now it's a lower elevation spot. That's the problem with it is it's only at about 26, 2700 foot. But it's got one of those barriers that I talk about that force deer down, right? And so I just knew, I was like, there's going to be deer here, obviously. The deer sign's everywhere in here. They're chewing this, they're eating this thing down to nothing. And I sat in there one day, and at one point, I saw 22 does at one time, which doesn't happen. Right. This doesn't happen. It's unheard of. I've never seen it before. It was unbelievable. No bucks. All right. It's just the bucks just don't live there. And so where the bucks are, they're way, way, way down in this drainage below me. Because I, I can, you know, I walk this thing up to tell where the bucks are living. I'm on the edge as if, I mean, it's as flat as flat can be, and then it just drops off. I mean, it, it flips off. And those bucks know it. They know where they say. And so there's a barrier on the bottom of this. I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, this barrier on the bottom of this drainage, and there's a barrier on top of this drainage. And so it, it compresses these deer. And sure enough, late season, I got snowed out. Go and check my camera, and there's just giant bucks running around chasing these bellows everywhere. And it's, it's one of those magical spots where you sit there and you're like, this isn't really happening. Like, this is stupid. Right. Uh, it, it felt like I was on the city park because there was just so many deer. Problem with that, the predators out. I, uh, it's, like a, it's like fish in a barrel for them there. Oh, yeah. 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 I, uh, I, matter of fact, the last time I hunted it before I got snowed out, I come toe to toe with the cootie that I watched, uh, take out a doe. Oh, man. Uh, that's a fun story if you want me to go in. Yeah. How wild was that, dude? That's like some, uh, mash, that's like watching Discovery Channel live. Oh, it was, it was insane. And I, I mean, growing up in North Idaho, I've never seen anything like it in my life. I, uh, I've been sitting on this, uh, this flat on the edge of the mountain for nine hours. Yeah, you know, and watching just watching those feed back and forth, back and forth all day long, eating this hard browse. And it's, I think it's probably third week in November. I'm thinking the buck is, is going to be around any minute. Didn't happen. And uh, it's probably 40 minutes from the end of daylight. And I look down and I hunt high, you know, I'm like July like 25 to 30 feet high. Um, look down at the, below, at the, I don't even know why I looked down. I look down right at the base of my tree and I just see this tail twitching in the brush. And I'm like, holy shit, that is a cougar. <laughs> and um, there was three, or, at that time there was like three or four does feeding out in front of me. 
And he took off after those does. And he picked out the biggest one. And this is a giant Canadian genetic doe. And he hit her sideways and she rolled his ass. I mean, he was probably only 120 pounds tall. And she rolled his ass. She spun on the dime, 180 dime, and took off. And he was standing there looking stupid at about 70 yards. And I thought to myself, well, shit, I could kill this two-year with my bow. I'll just chaff calling back in, right, you know? So I start uh, doing my deer calls. It, it sounded like a fawn. Sure enough, he starts walking straight back to me. Well, except the fact that he's a predator. He doesn't do what a deer does, right? He mm-hmm. circles back around. He gets about 40 yards and disappears. Oh, shit. That's right. <laughs> this isn't a deer. He's on dead email, right? So right. he's going to his advantage. So he circles back in the drainage behind me. And, oh, God. 16, 20 minutes less of daylight. I don't have a gun on me. Oh, I left the pistol in the truck. And so all I've got is the sliver slugger. And this is this is a bad situation. So anyway, I drop. I'm like, I got to get out of here. I get like, before I lose light, I got to get out of here so I can still see this cat. Yes. Yes. Push down to shelves or if I got to do something. Right. Right. So I down there jump out of this tree and start walking back to my truck, of course, just doing three sixties. Well, yeah, looking over my shoulder like oh, this cat is somewhere close, right? Mm-hmm. Close. And I got about thirty yards from my tree and I looked back and he is just crouched at the base of my tree. Just locking eyes with me out like this this right? Like right. That moment you feel you're like, This is it, this is how I die. This is yeah. In the mountains, face to face with the cougar. And, uh, the, okay, so let me have to back up a little bit. The other weird thing about these deer up there where I'm at, without never experiencing what else, they actually respawn to deer. I never got a deer work in my life, might have. And all these does all day long just bleed and grunting. Change. All that uh, fawn bleeding and, and doe bleeding, another doe had come about as a drainage. And she doesn't see the cougar. She sees me backpedaling from the cougar, and she starts blowing and stuffing and doing her thing which sent my ass. He took off after her and she never saw him. And the next thing I know, they were doing ass of the tea kettle down the canyon. And I would run it for my life back to my truck. <laughs> I didn't look back. I just kept going. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's uh, that's the kind of adventure uh, you can get in the mountains out here. Dude, that's crazy, man. Like, do you, uh, do you know Wilson's buddy, Chansey? Do you know Chansey? I don't know. Head- you know, it was, um, I guess he's born, uh, I think he was in Colorado for a while, but I mean, he's been in North Idaho most of his life. And, um, you know, he hunted with us, I think like the last day or whatever, um, of the hunt while I was out there and we were just kind of BS and, you know, cause I, you know, when I hunted in Montana previously, that was, you know, we weren't in grizzly country really at all, you know, um, maybe you would get a rogue one that would get off the beaten path, but it'd be very, very rare, you know, if that were to happen. And so it was the first time, and there's not any, you know, there's, there's no mountain lions in that, in that area and stuff like that. And so, you know, maybe some black bears or whatever, but that's about it. Um, so this is the first time I've ever been hunting in like legit predator country where it's like, all right, we got wolves, we got, you know, mountain lions, we've got grizzlies. You know, and so I carried with me the whole time I was there. I had a 44 Magnum that I carried with me. Um, and, uh, and we didn't see anything the whole, you know, the whole trip. Um, and, uh, 
was talking to Chancey, you know, I was like, yeah, was like, you know, I was like, well, we had something in camp the first night. I don't know if Wilson ever told you that, but something like poking around in camp the first night and was like brushing up against his tent and breathing real hard and stuff. So I, I don't know what it was, but I don't think it was friendly, whatever it was like, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so I was talking to Chance. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, we didn't, other than like the first night in camp where we had something in camp, I was like, you know, we didn't really see, you know, any, any black bears and see any, you know, mountain lions or whatever. He's like, he's like, well, he's like, you may not have seen any mountain lions. He's like, but I'm sure you walked underneath more than one. And I was like, I was like, really? He's like, oh yeah. He's like, there's lots of mountain lions around here. He's like, I promise you. He's like, you've walked underneath a tree. One's been sitting in a tree and you've walked correctly underneath of it. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I was like, I'm glad I'm there. I'm, I'm learning that as I'm leaving. <laughs> it's like, that's uh that's the thing about it, about the predators out here is they're there mm-hmm. and don't know it lost the tie you know yeah um i think they did a study in washington and one of the uh, parks over there they collared four or five cooties and i'm probably gonna misquote the how the study went but um Essentially, at the end of this, they, they were showing that this is this was a very public park, and a lot of people walked by these cougars within thirty feet of them and had no idea they were there. Wow! And uh, because I mean, they could see you know the cougars with the trackers next to the walking trail, mm-hmm. and people walking by them and having no idea. And so yeah, that stuff happens everywhere. Everywhere you go, most of the time, you know, growing up here, uh, if I had a dollar for Every time I've seen a cougar in the woods, I might be able to buy an apple. Right. So, they're just a very elusive. Um, now, if I had a dollar for every time I walked back to my truck and found cougar tracks in my cougar tracks, I don't have Right. Which raises the hair on the back of your neck. You know, even growing up with the predators, you're just kind of like, man, that's, I don't like that. Right. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> no, no, sir. My buddy was in, uh, where was he? Where was he at? I don't, it wasn't last year. It was the year before. He might've been in Idaho somewhere. Maybe. Mm, maybe not. I, for, I forget what state he was in, but, um, there were like the area he was hunting. There was clear, like grizzly signs, like grizzlies live here, like carry spray, do whatever. Like if you see one, like, go the opposite way like just like here are some bear rules right um and uh they're walking in and um and he saw a couple like bear they saw a couple bear tracks you know that were clearly like they were grizzly tracks he's like oh man that sucks like like, but i don't know how old the track is or whatever he's like it could be three days old like who knows where he's at or whatever he's like so we go and we hunt you know and he's like um and then they're they're long story short that they were coming back and as they were coming back he was like uh, he now he's a former like undercover narcotics cop so he's like used to crime scenes he's like dude he's like i'm walking back he's like it looks like a freaking crime scene he's like there's blood everywhere like there's parts of stuff he's like and that and as we go he's like i find like the head of like a deer that got killed you know he was like and then there's like a huge like set of grizzly paw prints and he's like let's get the f out of here <laughs> he was like never have i been so scared in my life you know what i mean he was like uh, it's it's a weird feeling when you're not top of the third chain. Yeah. Well, until you experience it, I can't really explain it, but uh, it's animalistic. Like, yeah. And you were like, 
you know, I I am not the top predator out in these woods. Not only am I not the top predator, but I am ill equipped against the top predator. You know. Yeah. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a different ball game. Right. But speaking of being a predator, um, you know, when you're walking into these setups, right? Like, give me your ideal setup. Like from like you found a scrape and like you know let's say there is a way to get into that scrape that, that Wilson and I found, right? Like, how are you setting your, like, how are you picking the right tree? Like, how are you situating in the tree? Like, what does your setup look like? So my, my perfect setup is going to be on the, going to be on the east side of the mountain. Um, generally on a ridge line on the east side of the mountain. And that's for my area, right? Because our prevailing winds are southwest winds. So, 95 percent of the time i'm gonna have a good wind if i've got a if i'm sitting on the east side of the mountain and be ball across my face over my shoulder generally rig lines are are where i'm looking by I'm, I'm walking these bridges especially the spots where i know or i've seen okay now i've got some parallel movement across this mountain i've got a nice bench here i've got a community scrape that's already here some things to that effect and i've got a steep drop off behind my back so that's where my kill tree is it should be 99 percent of the time i can go in there and i can um even if i've got a half-assed decent wind where it's like favorable to the deer those thermals should be pulling so hard behind me where the deer hey don't want to walk this i mean even a big mature butt is lazy if you don't have to walk in the bottom of this entanglement, in the bottom of this draw, you won't do it. Right. Right. However, he is going to J-hook. He's going to come in every single time. He's going to try to get down one of the other. He's going to J-hook in. And so if you don't give him that ability, right, you, you're sitting up high and got the good thermals and got the good prevailing winds, you're, you're not going to get busted. So how am I getting into these spots, right? So it's that's that's the tough part. So I either A, I'm coming from the bottom, which kind of sucks because you're sweating, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes if that's my only option, that's what I absolutely have to do. Um, it, <laughs> I have literally walked in in basketball shorts in the middle of winter because I did not want to sweat. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to give these deer anything, but if I walk in in all these clothes that I need to sit for 10 hours, I'm going to sweat so goddamn bad. I'm not going to stop sweating for the next three hours. And then you're going to be cold. Then I'm going to be cold. Yeah. So I walk in, it's just stupid stuff like that, right? If you, if you have to come in from the bottom, you do, um, prevent your sweating as much as possible. If you do sweat and you're close, you know, I'm forced up. 300 yards shy, 200 yards shy, you stand and spray back down, wipe back down, clean yourself as best as possible. Do everything you can to give yourself the most. I mean, obviously, deer's nose is just not But right. if you don't put as, as much odor into the air as possible, you've got a better opportunity. Right. And, um, control the things you can control. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah. if you've got very, very low amount of odor, I've had the wind switch on me where. You know, deer are like, no, I don't like that. Smell something. But it's not such a strong odor that they're just blowing the hell out of it. 
Right. You know, they, they, if they get one or two extra chances, and then you lift the dose. Now, obviously, with the EV True Bucks, you get one opportunity that you mess it up. Yeah. So, a lot of times, if I can come in from um, the same elevation, I have to walk up through that elbow. I will. Um, oftentimes, I'm really just trying to ride the edge of that drainage. There, I'm, I'm comfy. If you come from the top or the bottom, I'm riding the edge of that drainage. I know that buck is probably going to jay, jay hook in at some point. He probably cut my track on the edge of that. That's fine. All right. I'm just bringing my boost down. Um, if I get into any sort of situation where I can find some burnt trees, burnt wood, I'm rubbing my boots in it. I'm doing dumb shit, right? I'm doing everything I can to my favor. Um, uh, I mean, if you took a video of me going into the woods, it could probably be. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it gets a uh, laughable at some points, but, um, so yeah, so so textbook for me, right? Is I'm looking east side of the mountain. I want those prevailing winds. So wherever those prevailing winds are for everyone else on the other side of the mountain, I'm not sure what that is. Um, I know a lot of our winds are uh, yeah, we get a lot of west out here, west and southwest a lot. So fairly common, same thing, right? On the back side of the mountain, on the west side of the mountain, it gets tougher, right? And because Oftentimes, um, those southwest winds are, are blowing uphill where I want my thermals to be going downhill into some nasty drainage. But so what do you do? Well, you, your next best thing is to find a giant opening behind you, you know? And so what does that look like in the mountains? A mountain meadow, for out. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. Um, a big mature buck is not going to walk out in those great big openings, you know, and, and, and it's a, it, a night. Yes. You obviously get a picture of them in a night, but, um, and you may get a doe to, to walk behind you in those openings and you're going to get busted. Um, but again, you discover you play the percentages, right? You got to do it with him. Um, so yeah, I'm looking for, the big openings behind me. Um, so let me just, the videos of these guys uh, hunting, facing the big opening, uh, you know, back in the Midwest and these hunting shows, he laughable to me. Good idea. Um, it was just not something I would do. Yeah, I mean, it's laughable. I, it's, it's even like here in the East, like where, you know, there's a lot of hunting pressure and stuff like that. It's like, it's it's the same. Yeah, I mean, different, you know, um, scenario, but, but, for similar reason, right? It's like, they're just not going to show themselves in the daylight. You know, it's like, and so those things are, I just kind of refer to those as like deer wastelands, you know, as far as like hunting opportunities go. I mean, there might serve a purpose. There might be some food in there. They're going to hit it in the evening or whatever the case is. But for my purposes, other than like maybe gain an inventory and put a camera somewhere there to get Intel, you know, and like who's in the area, like they're, they're pretty much useless. But you've mentioned cameras a couple of times. How do you, how are you using cameras like in, in, in those mountains? Are you just, are you focusing primarily on like primary like community scrape areas and that's pretty much it? Or do you have a, a different approach? Yeah. So, uh, most of my cameras, um, uh, are going to go on a community scrape, either a one I found or B one I built. Um, you know, it's going to be a high percentage spot. 
you may not get a deer if you don't have it in like a right spot. Like you know, exactly. in a deer density heavy area, it's like you'll get deer by accident, but there you're not, even by accident you're not going to get one. Exactly. Yeah. So if I don't have evidence that deer are you know coming through, whether horizontally across this mountain, a good horizontal trail, or they're coming, I got a good game trail that's coming up and down this ridge. Where I just straight up found a, a really nice community scrape, but an older market, you know. I uh, I'm not putting a, a ton of cameras out. Um, you know, last year I probably put out more cameras than I ever have before. But generally, um, one side of the drainage is getting a camera, and whether the other side of the drainage gets getting a camera, um, cameras aren't cheap. You know, and, and unfortunately. Well, over the last three or four years, I've lost a lot more of them, and I've been able to afford a story for you know I don't elk hunters in there finding my spots, taking my cameras, or you know the the land is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller to, to actually empty deering, and some more and more people are in there. Right. So I'm I'm generally trying not to to lay out a a, a ton of cameras that are kind of giving me a way to guys. Um, you know, obviously, the the higher you can get the camera, the better. Gave it out right. people's eyesight, out of the deer's eyesight. You know, I've had <laughs> I've had big mature bucks come in for the first time ever and look straight at my camera, and they never came back. You know? <laughs> right? Yeah, they didn't. They didn't like the picture taken. <laughs> yeah. They well, okay, that was them in my bedroom yesterday, and I don't like that. So I'm right. Right. As far as like hunting, are you, do you hunt relative? Cause guys do different things and de- depending on the setup, I'll do it either way. It's some guys will hunt areas that have, that they have a camera in. Like, so like for me, for example, if it's a really, really good scrape and there's a, and it's in heavy enough cover and it's not like they have to open themselves up. It's like, I will hunt on top of that camera. I don't have a problem. Some guys don't like to hunt close to their cameras just in general. They, they, they never do. Where do you kind of fall with that? Do you hunt like the areas where your cameras are at? Or are you hunting off those areas? What's your kind of approach to that? I'm pretty much on top of my cameras, you know, um, generally because I'm, I am strictly hunting community scrapes, right? And so right. I know that where that deer, if he's going to hit that scrape, I'm, I want to have a good shot at him. And so my cameras are always facing my community scrape. Yeah, I'm right on top of them. I'm usually in 20, 30 yards of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, only a handful of times have I, you know, set up cameras in the surrounding area uh, that I wasn't um, sitting on directly. And what one being uh, that giant box that I killed, um, I hunted him for two years, and the first year I hunted him. Um, I get him on Canon in the straight and minutes after the end of legal shooting line. Regular, you know. And like, this this something I'm missing something, right? And so I set up kind of a swath of cameras. Uh yeah, you know, I put four cameras uh, in various areas to where he thought he was coming in. Um and sure enough, picked him up on camera seventy five yards away. And he was just, and he would, he was standing there for 45 minutes during the day or he knew I was in my stand. He didn't care. He was just sitting up there waiting because he wanted to circle down and check those, you know? Um, 
And so that was one instance where, where Buck, I, I kind of learned a ton about him by putting an additional camera up where I couldn't see him. Right. Unless it's thick enough, I couldn't see him where he was at. Never heard him come in. Nothing like that. He'd probably listen to me get out of my stand. And go back I'm sure. Um, the following year, guess what I did? I moved my tree stand where that some bitch was standing. <laughs> get the scrape behind me. And uh, the first time he came in, you know, late season checking those does, I killed him an hour and 20 minutes uh, before an illegal shooting line. You know, he walked in where he had walked in plenty of times before, plenty safe, and I still had a good win because it was on the edge of this nasty little drainage. And um, now I had to cross over where he was standing, what I would would have expected a lot of my bows to be better than. Mm-hmm. And so I really, really did not want to do it. But if that's where he was at, that's where he was at, right? And so I had to figure out how to do it and... Um, I killed him, you know, just killed him at 14 yards. And, and so, again, I guess, uh, short answer lawns for you there. Um, 99% of the time, I'm on top of my cameras, unless I have some other intel. Right. Man, we got to get you, uh, we got to get you a saddle set up, man. So you don't have to be lugging a stand into the, into those mountains anymore, man. That's like out those mountains. Like the one thing, whenever I was walking those mountains, I was like, man, anyone hunts deer out here and carries a stand, I was like, they are, they are strong and crazy. I was like, cause I ain't carrying a stand up any of this. It's, it's funny. You bring that up. Me and Wilson have had this. I was going to say, I'm sure he's already been on it. I, I don't think you would get away with it. No, I don't. I, these deer are so finicky that the idea that you could draw your bow behind a tree and swing out and kill this deer is insanity to me. And maybe I'm giving them more credit than I deserve. And I maybe I've got to try it uh, to prove my own point or to prove everyone else's point. Other part being is we don't have a ton of trees that, you know, that's true. Too many branches on them. Yeah. Um, I can see that being extremely effective. Elf hunting over a wallow, you know, going in drainage, drainage, finding different wallows, setting up your new saddle, waiting for those all to come in in the morning, that sort of situation. But, you know, I guess for example, I had a, I, a giant. I mean, one seventies come in on me. Um, I had never seen this deer before, my life. And, and mind you, I don't rarely ever, ever, ever see a deer that I've never seen before. I get like I know what's in the area, you know, and I don't know what prompted this deer to come in when he did. What what happened? But um, he came in and. I, uh, I was, I mean, I was flat foot. I mean, I, I, I didn't even realize what he was. I watched him building a scrape 40 yards from me in the brush for 30 minutes. What in the hell is this deer doing? And then he stepped out into my little pocket that I had there. And it was just, like, oh shit, that is a giant. <laughs> I it did not recognize. And I drew my bow. He was, he was off on my right really, really hard. And that was my mistake. I could put my stand in a bad spot. See, now if you had a saddle, you could have swung around the other side. You'd been fine. And that's that's where <laughs> I could have I could have made the the shot off the ten right? But um, when I drew my bow, 
my elbow just kind of brushed the bark on the tree. Then didn't, didn't bang on the tree. It was just like a sh- on the tree. And that deer didn't even, he didn't blow, he didn't snort. He was gone so fast, it would blow your mind. And that's how they survive out here, right? And that's why I'm like, yeah. I don't know if a saddle would work. You know? Well, they have so many predators out there, I man. They're just keyed in. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. Like, they don't. And it's not even you necessarily. It's more so. Made that noise doesn't keep you alive, right? Right, right. I was just going to say, it's not necessarily people per se, like it is here in the East where it's like hunting pressure is like the big like thing why they're always keyed up. It's like out there, you're like the third on the list of like, the, or fourth on the list of the things they're worried about killing them. You know, it's like, you know, and, and might, and probably the least efficient at killing them. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, but, I, I can't smell it there when I'm on top of them, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> It, not very efficient killers when it comes to hunting their white tails. And, you know, uh, what's interesting to that point is uh, probably the number one killer of mature white tails in Idaho is COVID. Really? And it's because, you know, big mature white tails, they're solo, right? They're always stamping. So they don't have eight, ten eyes and ears and noses. To keep, to keep them alive, right? Like the does yep. and everything else. And so a lot of times when I'm finding deadheads, you know, big mature buck deadheads, it's got a crushed nose. Like, you know, very obvious crew. Um, yeah, and I think uh, in the same instance, um, that's why a lot of um, mature buck don't get killed by wolves. You know, they, they'll move out if the wolves move in, but a big mature buck by himself isn't leaving a whole ton of scent for the wolves to track down. I mean, right. Like elk are, are easy prey for, for wolves. They can smell the damn things a country mile away. Right. Yeah. Or, or does or something to that effect where, um, you know, cougars are, are much more keyed in. And, and, um, well, yeah, that fishing killer. Extremely efficient killer. And so anyway, uh, as far as saddles go, I just, I'm so uh, hesitant, you know. Um, and I think it would have to be one of those situations where it's like, hey, I've got an extra doe tag. All right, let's go up here. Let's go hunt these and try. Right. I'm up north, even the does are keyed in. You know, right. Does don't get away with anything. And that way I'm not blowing my opportunity on a, Giant five and a half year old on another white tail. I'm doing it on a bell if the saddle just doesn't work out. Right. And so, okay. yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd be interested to try it. All right. All right. Well, I'll, we'll have to report back and see how Wilson, how, how he does getting you into, how he, how he does getting you into one. But uh, speaking of kind of getting dialed in and so forth, my season just kicked off and I should be getting out here, here soon. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you, well, I'm expecting. Because you changed jobs recently, I well, I shouldn't say jobs. You changed careers, so I'm I'm thinking now that uh, now that you're in the outdoor space officially, right? Uh, you recently opened um, North Idaho Archery, right? Is uh, is the is the business that you opened, and uh, so I'm thinking now that like you should have like all this free time now, right? To hunt whitetail. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But how did uh how did the uh how did the archery shop come about, man? Like that's a that's a pretty good transition from you know, a deputy to, you know, being in law enforcement to, you know, owning and operating an archery shop. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, obviously, I mentioned before, I was county deputy. Um, and uh, so I was working uh, with a guy named John Fontaine, well, one of my business partners now. And he was a deputy uh, back in the Midwest, um, so I think to be specific. Um, and he came out here and he was uh, copping with me. And, you know, both of us were combat veterans. Both of us are cops. We had spent most of our adult lives working for the government, and we were sitting around a campfire drinking whiskey, just kind of bitching about our jobs, you know. Where all good ideas start. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what are we doing? What? Do we enjoy being caught, you know? And he's like, are we good at it? Maybe. Maybe not. It depends on who you ask, but. Uh, right. He was like, do we want, can we see ourselves being a cop for 30 years and both of us who just think back when like, you can't right. not gonna happen and so there was the whiskey brainchild right it's like well okay what next and uh i said well hey you know Coeur d'Alene, idaho doesn't have a pro shop i have had a pro shop in over 20 years needs a pro shop you know, there's a ton of archery on his uh especially for for elk especially you know <laughs> um and that's some, that's a niche that we could have in the, in that market. And both of us were like, okay, well, that's great and all, but, uh, do we know anything about working on boats? <laughs> and it, like, we, I mean, we both just kind of fumbled around working on boats. We could kind of, neither one of us all city that good. Um, and so, you know, being the kind of personalities you are, was like, well, let's go make ourselves great. I really make this so yeah. Um, we went and we got uh, master certified to PSC's master certification school, um, which is taught by Alexander Kirilov, which might not mean anything to your listeners, but he's a world-class archery shooting coach, um, one of the best in the business on working on bows. Um, he's got like six of the top shooters in the entire world ever shooting underneath him. But he taught us how to be Olympic shooting coaches. He taught us everything. I've, you know, these more than the manufacturers on how to work on these bows. It was insane. Uh, nice. Not a cheap class, right? It's not a cheap class, but it was well worth, worth the knowledge. We get 30 years of knowledge put into a week or two. And, um, you know, from there, we just kind of expanded on all. We took on a few different certification courses and really nailed down everything that uh, we were doing. We kind of tested ourselves with, uh, you know, friends and colleagues and people that we know and say, hey, like, this is the knowledge we have. Well, let's work on your bow. Yeah, but you make feedback to us. And so during that time, we were working really hard to open up a pro shop. And we just kept getting kicked in the teeth by the, uh, the county government. There. They, they didn't want It's odd. They wouldn't give us a conditional use permit. Um, you know, they really wanted houses where we wanted to put our shop. Um, we had invested, we had all sorts of things that this was going to happen. And, um, you know, during this time we were, we were gaining a reputation amongst our friends and it's, as far as, you know, our quality was we were doing on these bows, which was giving us the confidence. Like, Hey, we, yeah, we know what we're doing. We need to keep right. Guys, my bow is never ever shot better than this. And not to, you know, try to tell our horn, but, that's the feedback for getting back. And I was like, right, this is incredible. We, we, you know, guys before are just trying to figure out how to tie a deal with them. And you get, 
Right. And, uh, which, you know, we, we put a lot of heart and effort in age while I'm bobbing it. Mm-hmm. He, he, I wouldn't put a bow and out that, uh, I wouldn't go into a true stand with myself. And so, you know, I'm hunting giant white tails. So, you know, I'm taking care of those bells. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, we had pretty much given up, uh, on this pro shop idea. And I had left being a county deputy. I went to work for a local police agency, uh, south of me to pull it closer drive to home. Um, and John, the, uh, he had become a realtor and he found the, this building that now uh, was absolutely in shambles. I mean, you're like, oh, you can, you can rent this thing. Yeah. Only going to get 20 yard indoor range where it's not the crazy outdoor elevated platforms, all the crazy stuff I wanted to do, but. Um, it's a pro shop that right? we can do that. About the same time, um, another individual, um, Austin Johnson, he, uh, my third business partner gets three of us. He was moving out here. He was talking with John back in, in Minnesota. And, uh, he said, Hey, I'm coming out and I'm, I don't know what I want to do. You guys still want to do this pro shop? Like he had been working at the pro shop for multiple years before that, mm-hmm. um, and so it was like, well, you know, you going to win all the gun. Let's do it, you know. And uh, so we got this building. We all quit our jobs and spent five months remodeling this place. And it's been insane. I mean, nice. So I think we opened up our doors um, until now. I mean, we they, they just closed the shop this week to, to go elk out. And uh, we've got half a dozen people like, hey, can I please come in? <laughs> <laughs> work on my bow i did this did that you know and so and we are you know one or two of us right yep um yeah that was kind of our transition out of law enforcement um that's awesome and guys like uh the kind of give a shout out to guys like grady anderson you know he he was uh he was a law enforcement officer he got out and uh, my business partner is kelly gilby and uh the black rifle copy Greg Anderson, he's also a jiu-jitsu guy, man. That's how I know of him. Yeah. A buddy of mine actually trains uh, at, a, I think, North Electric uh, Jiu-Jitsu, I think is the name of his gym that he opened. Um, mm-hmm. A buddy of mine who trained with me here, uh, Purple Belt, Troy, shout out to Troy. Uh, he doesn't hunt, so he probably won't listen to this, but anyway. Uh, he uh, he moved out uh, out to your neck of the woods and actually, you know, ended up meeting Greg and now trains, you know, jiu-jitsu with, with him in his spot. So, dude, it's crazy that, like, how worlds are connected like you know oh, yeah. greg and it, yeah. it is crazy but uh anyhow yeah he was a huge motivator you know just to kind of show guys hey you know there is a world outside of law enforcement but once you get in there you know it's like you got a decent page that you got a yeah it gives you just enough keeping captive right That's it. you got some guys that are like man i really want to do something else and so just like the three of us being able to, to, to get that motivation from an outside force to like, hey, you can do it, right? And just, it's, it's possible. And then affecting, right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's the super cool thing is, you know, much John, like I say, you know, uh, partnerships, uh, leads to sinking ships or something to weird to that second, right? But right. we, we all have the same mindset. We're all combat veteran. We're all hardcore outdoors me. We all are the kind of guys who take extreme pride in our work. So, you know, there's a little bit of uh, competitive edge in the shot where he's like, okay, who, 
who can build out the best bow, right? Who can right, right? Who who can be the best tech in the shop? And and frankly, right now, I I, I don't think there's anyone so that could say yeah, like guys double didn't get it. Everyone does double work. Um, and so it's worked out really well. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's awesome, man. Dude, I'm I'm super I'm super stoked for you. I know when when Wilson met you, you know, like I love I love Wilson, man. He's like one of my favorite people. Like the it was the, the way he and I don't even remember how he and I met exactly, but it was he's one of those people that when you meet him, you're like, yeah, we just became best friends. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's just kind of how he is. You know what I mean? It's like and uh and he, and we're and we're still that way today. And so whenever he uh, at one point I don't remember he texted me or called me or whatever it was. And this is kind of how I came to know of you is he was like, hey, I, I met these guys. They opened up the uh, uh, North Idaho archery shop, you know, in Coeur d'Alene. I think it's in Coeur d'Alene, right? Is, is where it's located. Yeah. And uh, he's like, they're super awesome. He mentioned you. He's like, you got to have them on. He's like, off from Hunter killing giant whitetails. He's like, actually, he mentioned, he's like, he knows Troy. And then like, just, he's was making all the points of connection. You know what I mean? Cause that's Wilson. I always say Wilson's superpower is, is to connect people. If he does, if, if he ever decided to be a politician, I don't think he should be, but like he would be really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying this to my wife the other day. Wilson, you like Kevin Bacon, the nine degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. That's Wilson. Yeah. Anyone who's anyone knows Wilson. Yeah, exactly. Everyone should have a Wilson in their life, is what I always tell my wife. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, hey, dude, I kept, I've kept you here for, you know, a little over an hour and close to 20 minutes here. I want to be sensitive to your time, but before I let you get out of here, let people know where they can find information about the shop. Let people know, you know, what social handles you guys are at. So like that, so people can follow along with what you guys have going on. And if they're local or close by that, they can get their, get their keister into your place. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on Instagram. I mean, just North Idaho Archer, you'd be too easy to find us. We're on Facebook as well, but uh, we spend probably a lot more time on our Instagram. It's just a lot easier for us guys want to see what type um, you can go onto our website, northidoarchery208.com. Uh, there's all of our profile information on there and, and everything that we offer at the shop. And, um, couldn't tell you our, our phone number off the top of my head, uh, honestly. But, uh, if you look us up online, you'll be able to find us. Um, give us a call, come on in. We love this channel with people. Yeah. And we love this, the, this discourse. We have guys coming all the time just drink coffee and, and talk about them. And that's what we're all about. We do have a uh, 24-hour access indoor range, so um, that's that's nice for folks who are coming in to work late. And, and so uh, that's been kind of a crowd favorite for the folks that, uh, especially this time of year, you know, if you're headed out to elk camp and, well, shit, I bumped something on my bow, let's go to the range at 3 o'clock and 1, that shit's still here to go. Yeah. Good luck now. Nice. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Congrats on the bull this year, and uh, good luck chasing some uh some giant mountain whitetails and hopefully i was i literally was talking to wilson like a couple out like two hours ago he and i were talking uh he called me and uh i think i'm gonna try to come back out next year so if not before hopefully i'll get to run into you then well i, I hope to have you out clint and uh we'll get you into some elk um if you're looking to chase whitetails i'll take you to wilson spots no that sounds good buddy <laughs> i appreciate you yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. 
And before I shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Genesee Beer. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.